Well, all right, everybody, go ahead and grab a seat. Uh, and as you do that, I just want to ask you a question. Um, what do you do when you feel stressed out, freaked out, and overwhelmed? Cry, take a nap. Some of the introverts are like, don't put me back in the greeting time. Um, look, uh, I, I want you to really think about it. Like, um, may, think about the last time maybe you felt that way. Maybe it was a crisis at work. Um, maybe it's a relational conflict in your life. Um, maybe you're there right now. Someone you love is not doing well, and um, you feel stressed. You feel overwhelmed. You feel the pain of that. Maybe you just went to the gas station this week, and you're like, what is going on? Um, now, here's what I found. Um, now that you've put yourself there, tell me if you found this to be true about your life. Um, when, when we feel stressed out, freaked out, and overwhelmed, uh, we tend to behave in less than ideal ways. Am I the only one? <laughs> I love it when laughter tells the whole story there. Uh, yeah, but uh, here, here's the question I want to ask as we get in. What if it didn't have to be that way? Um, what if moments of stress could actually bring out the best in us? Um, if you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it and turn to Mark chapter 14, uh, where we're going to see Jesus under incredible stress. Uh, if you're just joining us, we're in the late hours of Thursday, maybe into Friday morning of Passion Week. Uh, this is less than 24 hours before Jesus uh, will die on the cross for the sins of the world. And uh, Jesus has just told his friends, um, I'm about to be betrayed and I'm going to die. And so Jesus knows what's coming. Uh, in fact, he's been talking about this for several chapters now, really since Mark chapter 8. He's been preparing the disciples for this moment. But uh, as the hour actually approaches, uh, we're going to see that Jesus becomes overwhelmed um, by what is facing him on what we now call Good Friday. Uh, we're going to see Jesus tell his friends in our text today, uh, my soul is grieved to the point of death. Uh, Luke, who is a, a medical doctor, in his gospel account of this story will add that Jesus began to sweat blood. He's under that type of agony, that type of stress, in the Garden of Gethsemane. And what we're going to see in this incredible agony is um, we're going to see Jesus' response to this. Uh, we're not going to see Jesus, I'll just give you a spoiler alert, we're not going to see Jesus lose his mind and cuss out Judas. We're going to see Jesus at his absolute best. And, and, and I'll promise you this as we dive in. Um, if you take this story to heart, um, you're going to leave here more amazed at Jesus, and you're going to be more empowered to be the kind of person who shines under pressure. Does anybody want that? All right, let's go. Mark chapter 12, we're going to pick up the story where we left off last week in verse 32. And I'm going to read the whole thing for us. It says this. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John, and he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and he prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, if all, all things are possible for you, remove this cup from me. Yet, not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? 
Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and he prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and he found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came a third time and he said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hand of sinners. Rise and let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately, while he was speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd of swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when they came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and they seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword, and he struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against robbers with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a loincloth about his body, and they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and he ran away naked. Uh, This story, like so many stories in Mark, is one of contrast. Um, You have on the one hand the disciples, uh, and the disciples respond to stress with what I will call today a fleshy response. Um, they, Jesus gets arrested, and they uh, lash out in violence. They uh, cut off uh, a, a dude's ear, uh, and then after initially lashing out in violence, then they downshift into cowardice, and they all run, and that's where our story ends. Jesus is left there by himself. One dude even runs away naked, which means um, they didn't look very good running away. This is a shameful moment, but I mean, let's, let's have some real talk. We always want to do that. Um, can you relate to these guys at all? I mean, fight or flight, don't we say this all the time, that this is the human reaction to stress, that when stress comes, we'll either fight and cut off the high priest's ear, and Jesus is like, bro, what are you doing? Or, or then maybe after, maybe you're not the violent type, maybe you don't lash out in violence, maybe you run in fear when the going gets tough. Or maybe you're like our boy Peter, who I just have such a heart for because I get him, and you do a little bit of both. Um, Fight or flight is the natural human tendency when stress happens. And so I don't think we need to really unpack the disciples' actions too much. I think any honest reflection on your life, we can all say, yeah, I've been there. I've been like, Jesus, I'm not going to desert you. And then like six seconds later, I cut someone's ear off on Facebook. And then I ran away in cowardice when the conversation came up. And then I was like, I can't believe it. I don't know what to say to you, Jesus. I think we've all been where these guys are. But in Jesus, we see quite a different response to stress. One that we'll call this morning the faithful response. So you've got the fleshy response and the faithful response. Um, When Jesus is betrayed and arrested, um, rather than lashing out uh, and saying, hey, not just one ear, cut off all the ears, let's take them down, guys. Um, Jesus remains faithful to everything he has taught for the past 14 chapters. 
Um, when Judas betrays him with a kiss, Jesus literally turns the other cheek, and the other gospel accounts tells us he heals the man whose ear was removed, and he moves into their hands and says, let's go, let scripture be fulfilled. Jesus, in the face of great stress, remains faithful to his mission and faithful to the kingdom and the values he has proclaimed for 14 chapters now. And what we're going to be looking at today is how he got there. Um, how to move from a fleshy response to stress to a faithful response to stress. Because I think this is where we all want to be, right? Yes. Uh, we want to respond. I don't know about you. I would rather respond like Jesus than the disciples, even though I so often relate to the 12 in this story. Anyone else with me? So what we're going to be looking at today then um, is how do you move from a fleshy response to a faithful response? And, and I'll just warn you, I was with a group of Baptist pastors this week, so I've got three points. Um, point number one, some of you, you're going to love it today. Point number one, Jesus was aware of temptation. Um, leading up to his arrest, Jesus takes his disciples to a familiar place. He takes them to the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, um, what we know from the other Gospels that tell us more about Jesus' life is this was actually a place that Jesus frequented. He would often go there to retreat, to rest, to pray, and to get away. And, and this is why probably Judas knows to find Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Maybe this was his favorite place. And when the going gets tough, Jesus retreats to the Garden of Gethsemane um, with his friends. And when they get there, he says to his disciples, guys, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Um, Now, we'll come back to that statement, but I just want to point out, like, that is extreme anxiety. Um, But that's not the first time this has been said in the Bible. If you open to the middle of the Bible and go to the book of Psalms, like every other Psalm is David or some other godly person being like, God, I feel like I'm going to die. What's going on? And, And Jesus steps into that space and says, I'm feeling that way now. I mean, think about this moment. God in the flesh who heard all of the prayers from the Psalms steps into human history and experiences what it is to feel this way. He says, guys, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. And so what he says is, will you stay here and watch with me? He tells them three times in this story to watch out. Because here's the first point. When you are stressed out, you will be tempted. Um, It's easy when, uh, I should say it's relatively easy when life is going well, to love God and to love others like we've been talking about. It's relatively easy to live a life of wholeness when everything is going on in your way. Like, I'm a very godly driver when I'm on the freeway and there's no one else around me, no one to cut me off, no one to challenge my day. It's a lot harder to love your neighbor as yourself when someone's doing 55 in the left lane, right? Amen. There we go. Someone someone gets me. See, it's easy to love God and others and live the lives that we all want to when life is going well, but it's when you're being treated unfairly. It's when your hopes are being dashed. It's in those moments where you want to cry out and say, why, God? That is when you will experience this pull to try to take control of the situation, to say, I don't like what's happening, And so um, I know I said to love God and love others, but this person is unlovable right now. So I'm going to take control of this situation and try to bend them to my will to restore the flourishing that I believe I desire. Um, 
Or, or maybe you're like, what kind of monster would do that? I'm not someone that manipulates other people. No, you just manipulate through playing the victim and try to press people and push people around with saying, this is how I'm feeling, and your emotions get so big, there's no emotions left for anyone in the room. See, it's when the going gets tough that we will experience this temptation, whatever your personality, whatever your bend to sin, to try to control other people, control the situation, and you might do that in a way that looks very outwardly domineering, or you might do it in a way that looks like um, very not domineering. But this is the tendency of, I haven't met a human that doesn't have this tendency. That includes your pastor here. When the going gets tough, there is this bend towards sin. All of that is fleshy. And so what Jesus says is, watch out. Be aware of the pull that you're going to feel when the going gets tough. Because if you're aware that temptation is going to come, you can do something about it. It's not a sin to feel temptation. It's a sin to enter into it and to give into it. And to walk in that way. Um... I, you know, I grew up playing hockey, and I think uh, this is probably transferable to a lot of sports. And even if you're like, oh my goodness, another sports analogy, stick with me, because I think this will help. Um, when, when you're learning to play hockey, one thing coaches always stress is that you skate with your head up. Uh, and, and, and here's why. Um, because if you skate looking down at the puck, do you know what happens? Yeah, you get hit because you become an easy target. If you're looking down here and looking at, oh my goodness, I'm actually doing it. This is incredible. What happens is you become an easy target for someone to line up and hit and take you out. And so what coaches will always say is skate with your head up because if you've got your head up, you'll see the hit coming. You'll see it coming and you can either dodge out of the way or better yet, you can hit them back and knock them down so they'll think they're going to get one over on you and then pa, you get one over on them. <laughs> and, and so here's the thing. I, I think um, that what happens to us too often in the Christian life is we don't skate with our head up. We don't live with our head up. We don't watch out in the words of Jesus. If you're like, stop with the sports analogy. Okay, I'll quote the text. Watch out. But we don't. We coast through life thinking if I just have the right theology, let me look down at my theology here. Am I a four-point or a five-point Calvinist? Let me get some books on that. And we think, if I could just get that figured out, if I just know the right things that I want to do, oh, well, then this will be automatic. The goal's right up there. I'm just going to keep skating, and everything's going to be great. And all of a sudden, pa, we get knocked over by the reality of life in a broken world. And stress comes, and it knocks us on our butt. And, and, and it's not just life in a broken world. As if that weren't enough, we also, according to Scripture, have an enemy that hates us. And so when life knocks us down and we're disoriented and we're like, which bench is mine so I can get over there to get help and aid from the right team and we're trying to figure out up from down? Well, that's the time that our enemy loves to come to us and to try to drag us down further. Isn't this what we see in the life of Jesus? Satan doesn't come to him when he's in the temple, when he's teaching the crowds. Satan tempts Jesus after he's been fasting for 40 days and according to the text was hungry. Like that detail needed to be added after fasting for 40 days. Satan comes to us when um, life is overwhelming, when we're at our worst, and that is the time that he lures and tempts and entices us to drag us further down. 
The New Testament says we've got three things going against us, the world, the flesh, and the devil. It is like the evil trinity working against us. And if you're discouraged, just spoiler alert, we've got the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit working for us, and greater is he who is in us than who is in the world. So, you know, we've got a lot going against us, but we've got a greater God that is for us. And so what Jesus says is, um, and it's not just something he says, it's something he does. I want you to see this, that Jesus knows that when you're stressed, you'll be tempted. And so as he becomes overwhelmed about his coming cross, he gets his closest friends together and he says, hey, would you watch with me? Um, Some of you who are in a hard season right now can take a lesson from Jesus right here. You may need to call some friends together and say, hey, would you um, be watchful with me over my life? I know I'm going to be tempted. I'm kind of disoriented right now. Would you pray with me? Would you call me? Would you check in on me? Would you drop in on me? Would you stay here and watch with me? Now, um, hopefully your friends are better friends than Jesus's friends who consistently fall asleep on him after being asked to watch with him. And if I could just put that into modern terms for a moment so you can feel that. Um, this would be like if you had a friend, just hypothetical here, say, hey, can you pray for me? This is really burdening me. And you say, oh, sure, I'll pray for you. Then you see him at church next week. And then you're like, oh, I forgot. Anybody been there? I'm so glad you guys are honest this morning. Some weeks I'm like, oh, no. Yeah, we've all been there. And Jesus tells us why. Look at verse 38. He says, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. What he's saying is, he says, because you got to remember, where we ended the text last week, he said, you're all going to betray me. And they said, nah, Jesus, that's never going to happen. And so after they fall asleep on him once, Jesus shows up and he says, hey, fellas, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. You may want to stand by me. You may have this desire. But without help, you are going to fail. You're not even going to be able to stay awake and pray with me because your spirit may be willing, but your flesh is weak. And so he tells them, you not only need to be aware of temptation to watch out, but number two, you need to pray. Beware of temptation. And now number two, watch and pray. And and here's the crazy thing. This applies to Jesus as well. Um, I don't have to, you think about this, Jesus had to pray. We've seen this repeatedly in the Gospel of Mark that Jesus would withdraw to pray. And now we're seeing more of why. Um, and, and if that breaks your categories, like, but Jesus is God, why would he have to pray? What we read in Philippians chapter 2 is that though Jesus is uh, God in the flesh, though he is co-eternal with the Father, Philippians chapter 2 says that during his life on earth, Jesus laid down his rights to access his Son of God powers, and he lived a fully human life in the flesh just as you and I do so that he could be our substitute, so that he could be our high priest, so that he could save us from our human condition. He did this so that he could enter into the finiteness of being human and to know what it feels like to feel stress, to feel pain, to the point where his own divine plan that he, the Father, and the Spirit, according to Ephesians 1, planned before the foundation of the world, in 
his flesh, that divine plan could begin to feel overwhelming. Uh, Listen to how the author of Hebrews puts it. This is in Hebrews chapter 5, speaking probably of this instance in the garden. It says this, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. See, Jesus, he prayed through his pain because in his humanity, he knew he wasn't going to be able to make it through this night. He offered up prayers with supplications, with loud cries. Have you ever prayed that desperately? Jesus did. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. But when we come to God in prayer... God enables us to, revi- uh, to rise above our finite, fleshy limitations and to walk in step with his own spirit. This is the way to faithfulness. Jesus prays through his pain. And, and notice, it's not some churchy put-together prayer. Um, sometimes I think we can get really weird about prayer in church, uh, where we start speaking in like King James English. Um, Which, if that's how you speak all week long, God bless you, keep speaking that way. But sometimes we'll be like, hey, what's up, man? Hey, I got to pray. Dearest Father who art in heaven. And and it's just a total downship from our personality and our real heart and where we really are. And we can begin to pray for stuff that we know we should care about, but it's far removed from the things actually going on in our soul. Which, again, there's nothing wrong with King James English. There's nothing wrong with praying for that missionary halfway around the world that you know you should be praying for. But true prayer gets to where our hearts are really at. True prayer might look like, God, I want to pray for Craig and Lisa as they're in the Philippines as they get back there. But um, my heart's caught up in a thousand other things. Would you help would you help me see the importance of what they're doing and what you're doing around the world so I can join them in that prayer? True prayer gets to where our hearts are really at. If, if we don't get to where our hearts are really at, all prayer is is performance. Doing the stuff we think we should do even though our heart ain't in it. And if you've learned anything from the Gospel of Mark, I hope you've seen that religious performance with our heart not in it means nothing to God. See, Jesus, he prays what he's got. He says, Father, I know that we have planned this from before the foundations of the world. Jesus knew Isaiah 53 that we read at the top of the service, that God's plan was always to lay the iniquities of the world onto the Messiah to set free a people that could have true life in his name. Jesus, this is his plan. But what he's saying is, in my humanity, I don't know if I can bear it. Please remove this cup from me. I know we've talked about this, but now that the hour is approaching, I'm not sure that I can handle this. Does that prayer make you nervous? See, I... 
that prayer makes you nervous, I just want you to see that Jesus is getting real with his Father. This is what he's really feeling, and so he brings that to God, and that's what prayer is. Prayer isn't us trying to pretend to be more spiritual than we really are. Prayer is a conversation with God. It's us bringing the stuff, our real burdens, to a real God who really cares for us, trusting that he's big enough to handle our messy feelings, even if it's theologically incorrect. To say, God, I know that you said this in Isaiah 53, and I know I'm the Messiah, but I don't feel like I can do it. That's the type of honest prayer that Jesus prays. And until you can get to this point where you're being so honest with God in prayer that you are bringing your real self, I will just say this, prayer is just a performance. Real prayer is raw and honest. And I think some of us, the, the adventure God would have for us right now is to learn to bring our real self to him in prayer. Um, to say, God, I, I can't imagine praying like that to you, but I want to. Would you help me be more real with you? Would you help me not to pretend with you? Would you help me to realize that you already know everything so I can't possibly surprise you by confessing to you what I'm thinking right now? I think the adventure for a lot of us might be to learn to get honest with God in prayer and to pray through our pain, not after our pain, when we have hindsight and can look back and go, oh God, that's all the things you were doing there. I feel much better now. Uh, I still love you. Let's keep talking. That's often the tendency, is we bear down in our pain, we lean into our to-do list, and then after we're through it, then we can look back and talk to God about it. The invitation of this text is not just to talk to God after, but to lean in in the midst of your pain. To bring that to him. Because when you bring your real self to God, what you will find is he will meet you there. And his presence when he meets you there, it has the ability to change everything. This is the message of at least half of the Psalms. And this is a major piece of what moves Jesus into this faithful response. As he comes honestly to his father... He brings what he honestly has, and what the book of Hebrews tells us is he was heard in that moment. So Jesus prays through his pain, um, but he doesn't end there. And this leads to what I think is the most difficult point about this entire story. Um, Jesus rests in the goodness of God. Listen to how he ends his prayer. In verse 36, after saying, remove this cup from me, so he makes his will known to God, then he says, yet not what I will, but what you will. So Jesus makes his will known to God. He gets honest in prayer. He brings what he's really feeling, but he, he does not end his prayer there. He ends by saying, Father, I trust you. I know what I want in this moment, and so I'm going to bring that to you. But I also know that in my humanity, my perspective is limited. And so I, I've brought my will to you, but Father, I know all things are possible with you. I know that you know all things. I know that you've not laid down your rights to access your divine powers right now. And so I'm going to trust you to do the right thing with this. So don't let my will be done. I want to let you know my will, but please let your will be done. Because you have perfect hindsight in this moment. 
Now, some of you are like, I pray that way all the time, if you will, God. Um, Well, I will say this. It is easy to pray that prayer when prayer is a mere performance. It's easy to pray from something that's far removed from our heart and throw it, if your will, at the end of it. When it's not something that's near and dear to our soul. It's a lot harder to pray, God, don't let my will be done, but let your will be done when it gets nearer and dearer to our heart. It's a lot harder to say, God, don't let my will, but your will be done when we're praying for our kids. It's a lot harder to say, God, don't let my will, but let your will be done when we're praying for a broken relationship that we have all of this grief over. It's a lot harder to pray, God, don't let my will, but your will be done when we look out in our world and see such a clear injustice that we know grieves the heart of God, grieves our heart, is hurting people. And we go, God, would you just intervene and stop this madness? It's a lot harder to say, don't let my will be done, but Father, let your will be done in that moment. But I'll I'll submit to you that that Those words, resting in the goodness of God, is the key to Jesus' faithfulness in this story. Because you've got to realize this. The answer to Jesus' prayer is no. Jesus prays, God, would you let this cup pass from me? The answer to that prayer is no. Jesus is arrested. We'll see this over the next several weeks. He will die. He will drink the cup that he's been talking about for several chapters now. And look, it's not because the Father does not love the Son. Scripture tells us elsewhere the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands. This is at the center of reality that we believe in a God who is Trinity, the Father loving the Son, loving the Spirit, and out of an overflow of their love, everything good came in this world. The Father's never looked at his Son and been like, nah, don't feel like it. The essence of reality is a God who gives and who loves. So the no here, it's not that God didn't love the Son, and it's not that God didn't hear Jesus because he was busy over in some other part of the world like America at this time. What the book of Hebrews says is that Jesus was heard because of his reverence. So the father hears his prayer, he loves his son, and the answer is no. See, the father gives the son, in this moment, what he would have asked for if he had his divine perspective. Right? Ephesians 1 tells us this. Before the foundations of the world, God in Christ, with Christ, together decided, this is how we're going to restore everything. Rather than punishing sinners and sending them to hell, Jesus, we're going to send you. You're going to take that sin onto yourself so that we could be just and the justifier of those who would have faith in your work. This is God's plan from before the foundations of the world. This is why Jesus stepped into the womb of Mary and was knit together and put on a human body and became fully human and laid down his rights to access his Son of God powers for 30 plus years. The humility in that. This is God's will from cover to cover in the Bible to redeem sinners for the praise of his glory. And so by saying no, the Father, he's giving Jesus what they've always talked about. The redemption of the cosmos. 
And he loves his son enough to know in this moment, in his humanity, the stress is so great, his perspective is limited, and he's asking for something that is not in step with what I ultimately know that he wants. And so the father loves the son enough to give him what he would have asked for if he had his divine perspective. And here's what you got to catch, because you're not God, I'm not God, but God loves you and me enough to do the same for us in our own unique way. God will sometimes say no, or not yet, to our prayers. But it's not because he doesn't love us. It's not because he doesn't hear us. It's because he loves you and me enough to recognize that all we've ever had and all we've ever been is finite humans. And though some of you may be older and wiser than me, I don't think there's a person in this room over the age of 150 years old, and God is eternal. And the gap there is so profound that God in his eternity sometimes knows better than what we in our finiteness know we need. And so God, out of his great love for us, will sometimes say no or not yet with his divine perspective, knowing if they know what I know, if they could see what I see, this is what they would ask for. And so I'm going to give them that in this moment. And if you don't have a framework for this, that God will sometimes say no to you, not because he doesn't love you, but actually because he does, then what will happen is the second that God says no to one of your prayers, you will snap and walk away. And I've seen this happen with too many people I love who pray fervently for something and they can chapter and verse it. Here's where I know this is the will of God. And so they'll pray for something. I'm not praying some, I'm not saying something stupid. Like um, when I was doing youth ministry, I'd have a guy sleeping with his girlfriend and he'd be like, oh, we're, we're having some trouble. And so I'm just praying that God will, you know, heal this relationship. And I'm like, man, if God loves you, he's going to bring that thing crashing down on your mug. Like, I don't think God is going to bless sin, but I do think that he'll love you and be gracious to you, and he might actually restore that relationship and give you something more beautiful in the end. So I'm not saying, hey, if you just go out there and name and claim the Ferrari tomorrow. No, 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 no. I'm talking people who have played beautiful prayers, sincere prayers, prayers that would line up with the will of God, prayers much like Jesus's, where Jesus is like, Father, I know you love me. You don't want me to go through this pain. Sometimes God, with his divine perspective, says no or not yet. And in those moments, I've watched too many people walk away. Say, I I can't believe in a God that would tell me no or not yet. This is why I'm so burdened. I want us to have a framework. Jesus believed in a God that would tell him no. You think if Jesus could, you think maybe you could too? I'm not saying your prayers aren't sincere or good. I'm just saying I don't think they are better than Jesus's. Or more important than Jesus's. Church, we've got to have a framework for God loves us enough that he might tell us no or not yet. And it's not a sign of his cruelty or lack of care. Sometimes it's his expression of his greatest care and concern. If we don't have that framework, when the answer is no, in the flesh, we'll respond. Say, God, well, if you're not going to come through for me, then I'm going to cut his ear off. God, if you're not going to come through for me, then I will abandon you. I'll even leave my clothes behind. I don't care who sees it. But Jesus, when the answer is no, 
You think he didn't know when the soldiers arrived? Like, well, I guess that solves that one, Father. Thank you. When the soldiers arrive and he is betrayed with a kiss, Jesus doesn't walk away. He doesn't operate out of the flesh. He remains faithful to his mission. Because Jesus has had this framework since before time began. That God loves me. That he is for me. And if he says no, I trust in his goodness. In churches, I was praying for us this week. I just got the sense that of these three points, this last one is going to be the hardest one for us to hear. I know this has hidden some of you in some very personal space. And so if I could just encourage you, I was praying, God, how do we, how do, we do this? I was thinking about prayers. I'm like, I don't know that I can say, God, don't let my will, but your will be done there. God, how do we, how do we rest in your goodness like that? And, and this is where there's one final thing I want us to see in this story. And I, I would say it's probably the most important thing in this story. Um, this was something that, uh, when this was pointed out to me, uh, it completely changed how I understood the cross of Jesus Christ and really the nature and character of God and maybe my entire life. Um, David Platt, in his book Radical, he asks this simple question. He kind of asks it in passing, but this was a, really a significant moment for me. He asks this question. He says, why is Jesus in such agony in the garden? Now, I'm the kind of guy I write in the books. I'm like, duh. He's about to die. He's about to be put on a mock trial. He's about to be lied about. That doesn't feel good. He's about to be whipped and beat to where his skin will hang off of his bones. He's going to have a crown of thorns thrust into his skull. He's going to be hung on an execution device that was so gruesome, it was reserved for the lowest of the low, slaves or enemies of the empire. I, I, so I write in the margins, duh, bro. Why is Jesus in such agony? But then Platt goes on to share all of these stories about men and women who've died for their faith in Jesus, who have been crucified, and he tells some graphic stories, who have had their skin removed from their bodies, who have had their heads removed, who have been burned alive and man and woman after man and woman across countries and nations and eras of history will go to those deaths singing, rejoicing, and saying things like, I can't believe I'm counted worthy to suffer along with Christ. And so the question that Platt asks in his book is he says, were these men and women from Christian history more courageous than Christ himself? If men and women throughout history have gone to equally gruesome deaths, singing, then why is Christ in such agony? And see, Christ is in agony here because he wasn't thinking about the Roman nails. He wasn't... He wasn't thinking of the mocking that was about to take place for him. He wasn't thinking about the physical pain he was about to be in. No, he was thinking of something far worse. Listen to his words one more time. He says, remove this cup from me. The cup is not a reference 
to a Roman execution device. The cup is a reference to divine judgment. This is how the term the cup is used all over the Old Testament, the Bible Jesus would have had. And look, I know divine judgment, we can scoff at it these days. We can say, oh, that's so outdated. But I I haven't met a person that doesn't believe in this at some level. I mean, we all believe injustice is wrong, right? Yes. And we all long for justice to roll down like waters and renew this world, right? See, we all long for justice. And what the scriptures tell us is one day, the goodness and the mercy and the love and the justice and the righteousness of God will wash over this world like the waters cover the sea. And this place will be made new. And it's going to be a great day for the birds and the bees and the trees and the dogs and all of the created order except for those of us who have brought injustice into this world. And you might be like, well, I'm worried about that person, but it'll be a good day for me. But what you've got to see is We don't want to read this story and be judgmental about the disciples. Like, how dare you guys? If only I were there, I would have stood beside Jesus. No, you wouldn't have. That's why this contrast is here, so that we could see that we so often are like the disciples, that when stress comes, anxiety, trouble comes, we so often respond in the flesh. And so we lash out in violence or we run in cowardice, both being problematic results that bring great brokenness and great evil into God's good world. And because God is committed to love and justice, he's not just going to overlook that. And so on the day when God's justice rolls over this water, it's going to be a great day for the birds and the bees and the dogs and the trees. But for all of us who like the disciples have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, we will end up on the wrong side of divine justice. And so this is the gospel. That God in eternity says, I love you too much for you to end up on the wrong side of my justice. And so what I'm going to do, I'm going to send my son to live the perfect life that I know you're going to fail to. And at the end of his perfect life, I'm going to take all of my right and just wrath against all of the ways you will fall short and bring evil into this world. I'm going to take all of that wrath for all who would ever believe, and I'm going to pour out that cup on my son on the cross. One preacher describes this moment, like if you could just close your eyes and envision you're standing before a Hoover Dam. And all of a sudden, the wall bursts and the water comes flooding out. And these are the waters of God's judgment and you are about to be pummeled. And right before the waters take you out, a hole in the ground opens and drinks it all. And you're like, I'm saved. That's what Jesus is in agony over. He knows that from before the world began, his plan was to drink the cup of his own divine wrath that on the cross he might drink the entirety of God's wrath for all of the sin, for all who would ever believe, and that when he drinks it to the dregs and puts it down, says, it is finished, he means it. 
He means there's no wrath left for you and me as we struggle and act more like the disciples than Jesus so that he could proclaim the good news and say, anyone who believes in me, your sin, past, present, and future, it's been dealt with. So come on into the party. Come on in. Find life in my name. This is the whole reason I came. This is the gospel. And the gospel is why Jesus was in such agony that night. Because the gospel cost the Son of God something unthinkable. Something I pray that none of you will ever know. To drink the wrath of God onto himself so that you and I wouldn't have to. This is how much Jesus loves us. I'll never understand someone that would be angry that God would be a God of justice. Like, you have to jump over the cross of Jesus Christ, God drinking his judgment upon himself, to ever experience that. He loves you so much, and he doesn't want that for you. And that's why he went through this awful night in the garden. That's why he went through a much more awful Good Friday. See, we have a Good Friday because Jesus had a bad Friday. And that's what he's in agony about on this night. And I promise you this. As you realize the depths of Jesus' love, that we would have a God in the garden who would love us enough to go through that much agony so that we could have life with him? The more you believe that gospel, the more you will find yourself responding to stress and sorrow like Jesus. See, Jesus responds this way because he knows what the Father is like. From all eternity, he has always known the Father has been for him. And so when sorrow and struggle comes, Jesus doesn't operate out of the flesh. He's aware of temptation. He prays through his pain, and he trusts the Father's goodness because he knows the love of God. And so my question for you this morning is, do you know the love of God? Do you know the depths that Christ has gone through so that he could say to you this morning, I love you, I'm for you. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how you've walked in here. It's not bigger than my cross. Don't you be in agony over what I was in agony for and drank for you. Find life in my name. Because the more we believe this gospel, the more we will find ourselves able to respond faithful instead of fleshy. Because this is what love does. This is what the love of God does. It changes us and makes us into new creatures who have been so loved that we can rise above our finite status and limitations and patterns of sin and begin to act like sons and daughters of God who image and mirror the true son in this world. This is why Jesus went through this agony. Instead of punting and running, this is why Jesus took it upon himself so that you could be free, so that I could be free. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pray for us. And then we are going to take communion together and we are going to sing just like we do every week. We're not that original here because I know it's been a long week. And what we need is to be refreshed with the love of God we've just heard preach. And so let me pray for you and then we're going to ask the Holy Spirit to work these things deeper into our bones. Jesus, I thank you that you... you would go through such agony for us. Jesus, it, 
It defies the imagination of a finite human to understand the depths of your love that would move you to do this for us. And so I pray that you would send your Holy Spirit to take the gospel that we have just been warming our hearts around. And would you make these things real to us? Would you take the truth of your love and wrap it around us that we might know a little more fully how much you love us this morning? That we might respond to stress and anxiety in faith instead of in the flesh. That we might thrive in these moments. And in our thriving, we might point our friends and our neighbors and everyone who knows us to the God in the garden who can give them that same life too. In your beautiful name I ask. Amen.